This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. And for 45 minutes we thought that Liverpool were human or humans. And at the end of it all, they are humans, just humans who are very good at football. A thrilling attempt for Villarreal who harried and pressed and scared the Reds before Luis Diaz arrived. The Spaniards dropped deep and their keeper Ruli decided to have an indifferent evening. So Liverpool will play every game they possibly could this season and await Real Madrid or Manchester City in the Champions League final. Also today, Bournemouth joined Fulham in the Premier League after a tense win over Nottingham Forest. What are the chances of either side next? season will it be more than Scott Parker's increasingly agonised post-match soliloquies accompanied by the streets there's Manchester United's comfortable win over Brentford does Abramovich actually want his one and a half billion pounds we'll do a bit of Serie A wigs your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly on the panel today Barry Glendenning hello hi Max Simon Burnton it's been a while how are you I'm very well thank you for having me that's a total pleasure. What have you been doing? You've been watching cricket, haven't you, or something like that? I, I was in Malawi uh, on holiday for a few weeks, and then I came back, went All to right. Poland uh, to visit some uh, Holocaust-related sites with former cricketer Azim Rafiq and some others. Uh, read all about it in last week's Observer. Uh, and now I am, well, yesterday I was in Durham uh, for Ben Stokes unveiling as England captain, cricket cap- the test cricket captain. And now here I am. Did Ben Stokes have a, like a, a sheet over him? And was it sort of, did was it pulled aside and you were all surprised to see Ben Stokes? Or was it, was it a more formal affair? Yeah, it wasn't a literal unveiling. I think you're taking that word right, a little too right. seriously. Yes, I, I probably am. Uh, Nicky Bandini, welcome. Morning. Uh, let's start then uh, uh, with the Champions League semi-final, second leg, Villarreal 2, Liverpool 3. Uh, Keshav says, can you ask Barry if Liverpool are good? Uh, Autumn Soccer says, can you confirm for the listeners who watched Bournemouth Forest that Villarreal played well in the first half? And Rich says, was Klopp's team talk at half-time, lads? It's brackets X, close brackets Spurs. Uh, what a brilliant first half from Villarreal and a completely dominant second half from Liverpool. But I think we, we should give credit to Villarreal because there was so much talk after the first leg, Barry, about you know whether they deserve to be there and all of that. And they were... I haven't seen Liverpool that vulnerable for I don't know how long. Yeah, and let's be clear. There was talk from one pundit about whether they deserve to be there. And I didn't notice uh, our Talksport colleague, Jason Condy, he, he 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 went on a rant after the first leg. That got quite a lot of uh, attention. But I think he was the only one really who was that dismissive or even anything approaching that dismissive of Villarreal's right to be in the semi-final. And I'd say he was sweating at halftime last night <laughs> because he it was beginning to look like he might end up with several omelettes worth of egg on his face. But uh, he got away with it in the end. And for the, the correspondent who wanted to, you know, us to, to vouch for the that Villarreal were good in the first half for the benefit of those who were watching Forrest v Bournemouth. The, the two games were quite similar, actually, in that they were both your classic game of two halves. Forrest dominated Bournemouth in their game and then Bournemouth came back to win. And Villarreal completely dominated Liverpool in this game. Liverpool were uncharacteristically awful. I don't know. There could be any number of reasons for that. There were, you know, fatigue, the, the hostile environment of the 
the little compact stadium, the weather. The, the, it was like biblical rain in, in Valencia for the day and night before the game. They just they, they didn't click. They might have been trying to conserve energy because maybe they, they were a bit complacent. But anyway, Villarreal tore into them, uh, got the early goal that really got the fans going and, and had a 2-0 halftime lead. Possibly should have had a penalty in the first half. I thought the Allison, you know, that, that was looked a bit iffy to me. Allison on Giovanni Lo Celso. And uh, yeah, I was hugely impressed with Villarreal because I didn't see that performance coming. No, I didn't. And um, they kind of out Liverpool, Liverpool for that half, didn't they, Nicky? Yeah, it was it was exactly that. It was the high press. It was the intensity. I think there might have been a, uh, an element in that Liverpool performance of just we've been talking, talking, talking about this quadruple. They have played nearly sixty games this season. You are two 0 up from the first leg. I think that whether or not they would like to admit it footballers like any other person come into certain games with a different mindset and I think there might have been a little bit of complacency and I think that sort of conversation the discourse that um, Jurgen Klopp had afterwards where he was saying that he'd got to to half time and he likes to show videos at half time and he's going to his assistant um, manager Peter Kravietz and saying his video assistant sorry you know can you give me some sort of something good from the first half that we can show the players so that it can be the thing to to rally around like this is what we did right let's try and replicate this and there was nothing and I think that's partly yes Villarreal showing two sides to themselves and certainly it makes you sort of want to again sort of clap back a bit at those people who after the first leg were so quick to tear into Villarreal to accuse them of a lack of ambition. It's a two-legged tie, and I think Villarreal very much saw this as get back home and 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 see what we can do there. And you know, if it had been one goal instead of two from that first leg, then it would have been a very very different situation at halftime. And actually, it's hard, Simon, isn't it? When you've got nothing to lose, you've got to go for it, and then suddenly you've got something to lose, and it's harder in the second half. They sort of dropped. It was a totally different performance from from both teams. You wonder if actually Villarreal had only been one nil up, they'd have had to keep doing what they were doing. I, I think that it's quite hard once the, the momentum in a game is very heavily set. It can be hard to turn that round. Like a like a, when Liverpool played Barcelona a couple of years ago uh, and won four nil at home. It was one nil at half time. Barcelona went in. They couldn't they couldn't reset. Uh, and we know what 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 followed. What Liverpool managed to do yesterday is reset at half time. Uh, they made one uh, change in personnel. And from that, I mean, it contributed, obviously, they transformed the game. And that, that's to their credit. And the first half performance was really dismal. I mean, it was, it was appalling. There were some, there were, I guess, some kind of tactical reasons. You could say they were struggling to pass the ball into the feet of their attackers. You know, every time it went to, uh, to Mane, Raul Albiol was there snapping his ankles. And every time it went over the top, it would run out of play or go through to really short passes mid in midfield weren't working. Tiago was mishitting things. Cato was I mean, just terrible in the first half. It is an achievement. I mean, obviously they underperformed, but to, to successfully switch that, the mindset, the momentum at halftime is not easy. And, you know, that was, was really impressive, whoever the opponents were. Uh, and, and how much credit do we give Luis Diaz for that, that turnaround, Barry? Uh, loads. I mean, it, it, he transformed them. He came on, went on the left. Mane moved into the middle. Jurgen Klopp was quick to stress after the game that, you know, 
Diogo Jota was not f at fault. It was He wasn't to blame for the first half performance. There were 11 people to blame, but it was Jota that made way. And when he came on, he ran amok. Now, I think Villarreal's players were just ran out of oomph and energy. We've heard Wilson say before that, you know, the sort of talking about the perils of scoring too early. <laughs> I do think maybe they scored their two goals a little bit too early. Obviously, if you'd off offered them a 2-0 halftime lead before the game, they'd have snapped your hand off. But they they just weren't able to cope with them. Um, Liverpool played much higher up the pitch. They played with much more menace and they started fizzing passes together and I'd quite I'd be interested to be a fly on the wall in the dressing room at halftime in a situation like that. Was Jurgen Klopp ranting and raving at them or was it calm and measured and come on lads, you you know you're better than this. But um Luis Diaz has to be Liverpool don't sign too many duds, but he's an absolute gem. He's got that. I, I it's because it, the sort of the, the conversation I felt like after the game was all about how you know, he he would get on the ball and dribble at people and, and even sort of some of his teammates talking about that. I think um, Andy Robertson was talking about that after the game, like just having someone who's willing to run it, uh, the defence kind of linked up that midfield and, and attack where there'd been this disconnect. I mean, Klopp said as well, he felt like uh, the problem had been that the attack was, was stationed too high in that first half. And that's why he's saying it wasn't about personnel, it was about people needing to, to find those mid-spaces. He's willing to get on the ball that he, that he can dribble past the man. He's just got... There's different ways of being a great dribbler, right? There's players you watch and you think, wow, the ball is glued to their foot and they can just sort of manipulate it so finely. Luis Diaz, he's certainly a, a very sort of technically able player, but he's just got that edge of chaos to him. He's got that edge of sort of, I don't know, sparks flying off him and, and danger to him that I think the game needed, or Liverpool certainly needed in the game, to change it. Because as soon as he's got the ball in his feet, you just feel like you're not totally sure what could happen. And that little seed of, of again, of chaos... Is, is what was needed to, to unsettle the Real team that was so controlled in that first half. I mean, I think sort of when you were saying about them out Liverpooling and Liverpool in that first half, Max, one thing we didn't say, they had more than more than half possession in that first half. I think that was the most striking thing. Villarreal had something like 56% possession in that first half. And I think that against Liverpool is so rare. And especially after the way they played in the first leg, it was really, really very surprising. And then a huge turnaround in the second and actually, to win these games, Simon, you need everything to be perfect, right? If you're playing Liverpool. And within that, you need a goalkeeper that doesn't give away two, maybe three. Three's probably harsh, but give away two goals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't help. Just uh, that Fabinho first goal, just as Fabinho looked up to assess his options and, and really then leaps to his right to deal with a cross. And then he realises how big the space is at the near post, leaps to his left to deal with the near post and ends up with one leg here, one leg there and a big hole in the middle for the ball to go through. That was pretty much the highlight of his second half performance. <laughs> Went downhill from there. It wasn't a great look for the lad. The pressure at that point was was overwhelming. Uh, it, it was interesting. Everyone talks about the impact that Luis Diaz had. But the first two goals came uh, down Liverpool's right wing where Alexander Arnold had done nothing in the first half. He'd barely got over the halfway line. Liverpool had barely had held possession for long enough for him to do so. The fact that Diaz was stretching the Villarreal de defence uh, wide, pulling them back, gave him the space and the time, and and you know he did the rest. The left-footed cross for the second goal 
uh, absolutely gorgeous. The timing of the Luis Diaz run header wasn't great, but uh, but Geronimo really did the rest, and um, and the die was cast from there. And then the last 20 minutes, Villarreal were trying to attack and it could have been any number of goals. The fact that it, it only it ended in a, in a respectable scoreline uh, was down to, I don't know, Liverpool's overexcitement and profligacy. Uh, the, the XG stats were, were amazing. You talk about a game of two halves. In the first half, Liverpool's XG was 0.06. And in the second half, Villarreal's XG was 0.00. It doesn't get more emphatic than that. That is not a lot of goals. That's not many goals, is it? <laughs> Interestingly, just on the subject of Geronimo Rulli, the, the Villarreal keeper, he, I believe that Geronimo, the famous Native American chief and medicine man, his name derives from, uh, it's, it's a Apache translation of the one who yawns. And Geronimo Rulli is a, sort of the one who has a yawning chasm between his legs, <laughs> through which the ball seems to go with unerring frequency. But, um, yeah, I just thought that was sort of mildly amusing. I do think Geronimo is a fantastic name and more people should have it. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think you are. I mean, as someone who has recently named a child, uh, Ian, I, I, um, <laughs> I, 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 do, I do think you've got to be bold to give your son the name Geronimo. I just think, you know... You can call him Ron. You can say, tell everyone he's, he's called Ron. Ron's a normal name. Ron, oh, okay, that's true. Is that short for Ron? No, Geronimo. Or, <laughs> no, or Mo. Good point. Or Ger. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> You've got so many choices. What a versatile name. Who knew? Um, I also really enjoyed at the end how Villarreal went slightly Atleti, slightly Cameroon 90-90 without winning and just going, well, we're out of this now, so solid. We'll just kick everyone. It just reminds me of every Sunday league cup semi-final I've ever played in the losing team you know someone's taking it in the corner and you just know a centre-back is going to come and absolutely rinse you uh, we got a great tweet from Vandalay Soccer uh, who's been listening back uh, to old podcasts and on the 17th of May 2021 Jonathan Wilson made uh, a prediction about Liverpool and the Champions League uh, that I'll play to you uh, right now I can you imagine how bored we'll be of talking about Alison's header that got them in the Champions League as they prepare for the final in Istanbul next year, assuming it is in Istanbul and not move to Portugal again before the final in Istanbul next year. It's become one of those moments that everybody talks about and we'll be utterly bored of. So let's enjoy it while we can. What, what do we need to happen? Do we need another goalkeeper to score for Leicester or Chelsea? Do we need Mendy or Schmeichel to score so that we don't talk about Alisson. I'm aware that then we would talk about that goal. There's nothing we can do, Wilson, unless you just well, don't want Liverpool to qualify for that reason. Liverpool could go out tamely in the last 16 to a mediocre French side. Would work. OK, all right. Well, let's, we'll see if we can arrange that. Um, We're pinning all our hopes on Bordeaux. <laughs> I love the idea that Wilson was utterly convinced we'd be talking about that header that Alisson scored against West Brom to get Liverpool in the Champions League. And I don't think I've even thought about it for, for a, a second. Nicky? Well, I just... It's worth sort of pointing out, since we've just been talking about Geronimo Rulli, it was his penalty in the shootout in the final of the Europa League that got Villarreal into the Champions League. So goalkeepers scoring goals. Yeah, um, it is mad. I mean, I I was surprised when I saw the league table that Liverpool didn't win the league last year because they're, they're, they're so good. Do we get now, Simon, do we get to the stage where we look at every one of Liverpool's games and decide if they're going to win them all? 
and then decide what that means they'll end up with. I mean, obviously that would mean they'd end up with a Champions League and an FA Cup. If they win all their league matches, they still may not win the league. And Or do we just wait until they've played all their games and then decide how good their season's been? I mean, obviously you need to wait. Uh, just to play every possible match, every match you could conceivably play in a season is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You don't win a trophy for it, but, but uh, it is an incredible achievement, remarkable, astonishing achievement. And if they, you know, that's theirs, no matter what happens in the reigning games of the season, it, it's been an a incredible achievement and nothing that, that they or anyone else can do can take that away from them. Although having said that, if all they come out of it with is the League Cup, then they'll be feeling pretty gutted at the end of the season, I suppose. Just trying to think, you could play, if you were like League One or League Two side, you could play more, couldn't you? If you got to the playoff final, and you got to the final of the Papa John's and you got to the final of the League Cup and the FA Cup. So, you know, that, that's something for League One and League Two teams to aim for next season to say, we've played more games than Liverpool. I mean, I guess I haven't thought I haven't thought it through entirely, but it would be some season for Stevenage, wouldn't it, if it happened? Um, so, look, Liverpool versus Real Madrid or City. Uh, uh, let's preview that game briefly. Um, uh, Nicky, how do you see the Real City game going? I don't know that I can make any sense or predictions for Real Madrid games anymore. I imagine that City will play the better football and quite possibly Karim Benzema will score three goals and Luka Modric will do something extraordinary. And who knows? I'm just still personally reveling a bit in the image of Carlo Ancelotti. I'm one of those sort of squares who never really thought smoking was cool, but Carlo Ancelotti with a cigar celebrating his his title with Real Madrid was was an image that, that I could be here for. Are you are you gonna go to sixty a day straight away off the back <laughs> of Ancelotti? Maybe not. Uh Simon, Barry, any thoughts on, on tonight or or wait and see? I'm just really looking forward to it. I have absolutely no idea what's gonna happen. Not a clue. But I think I would rather a Liverpool Real Madrid final. I think Liverpool owe them one, and but I'm not. I'm not particularly bothered. Just surely everyone will now want that a, a European final between two teams from the same country, particularly two teams who seem to be vying with each other for everything, is not as interesting as the alternative. And obviously, the most interesting possible outcome of. The semi-finals was for Villarreal to end up with a trophy, probably by beating Man City in the final. Uh, but that's no longer available, so we'll go with the next best option. I liked Mo Salah being totally honest about that's what he wanted. Like afterwards, when other people were being asked, they're like, oh, we don't mind, you know, European final. And Salah just straight out, yeah, no, Real Madrid. I want to play Real Madrid. He didn't, didn't hide it at all. And Barry, a great chance for Mo Salah, if Real Madrid get through, to get one over on Sergio Ramos again. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> After that um, shithouse move. And uh, I haven't seen Ramos feature too, too often for Real Madrid this season. I don't know if he's injured. <laughs> um, no, but, I don't know, but presumably, presumably he has to be fit for the final, you'd have thought, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd hope so. There will be people out there who won't get this this reference <laughs> well they should listen more they should listen more avidly shouldn't they anyway that'll do for part one uh, part two Ben Fisher will join us and we'll talk about Bournemouth's promotion to the Premier League uh, welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly so Bournemouth are in the Premier League they joined Fulham uh, they beat Nottingham Forest 1-0 last night Kiefer Moore 
coming off the bench. He hadn't trained, um, but he scored a well-worked free kick, which means the Cherries are in the top flight. Let's talk to our EFL man, Ben Fisher, who's out in Rome for the Leicester game in the Conference League. I like that we just give you... We don't give you the elite football, Ben, because you know that's the that's the that's the football you want to cover, isn't it? Just the one just below the absolute elite. Yeah, I don't, I don't want the elite football, Max. I was uh, sat in the uh, hotel lobby last night trying to get a trying to watch or watching a stream of Bournemouth Forest, which you know I didn't envisage doing a few weeks ago, certainly. And that is, um, I suppose, a compliment to to Forest to taking that automatic promotion race, you know, to the penultimate day pressure game for Bournemouth and you know they got the job done I'm, I'm not sure if I fancied them to be honest last night um, thought it might have been a draw and then teed up into the final day but yeah Bournemouth back in the Premier League for the first time obviously you know without Eddie Howe a new era now Scott Parker and it also means it's seven years since uh, I know Jeff Mostyn the chairman was back in the changing room last night getting sprayed uh, drenched in champagne this time by Jefferson Lerma and that means it's seven years since Callum Wilson was slapping his backside live on television after they got promoted so um in 2015 so um you know Bournemouth back in the Premier League and um yeah be interesting what they sort of make of it this time around so once every seven years a player will be uh, doing something to Jeff Mostyn in the Bournemouth dressing room to signify that they're back in the Premier League um I heard a, a Bournemouth podcaster on the radio yesterday saying he thinks that had Kiefer Moore been fit that they would have pipped Fulham to the championship, which seems quite a bold claim and resting quite a lot on the abilities of, of Kiefer Moore. But, you know, it, had they been missing that kind of player, you know, to, to make their promotion sort of more secure than it has been? Yeah, I th- I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that claim. But yeah, I think I agree with the sort of sentiment in that Kiefer Moore, I mean, he's not even started a game for the club yet. Uh, they signed him in January. He's been injured. Um, three appearances off the bench and two of those have been pretty significant obviously last night getting the, the winning goal really cool finish from a um, sort of, you know training ground routine free kick but it was Swansea when they you know Bournemouth are 3-0 down and, and Kiefer Moore steps off the bench gets two goals ex-Cardiff striker scoring two goals at, at Swansea and yeah I think Moore's definitely uh, you know he's a big presence really big player for Wales as well so that's a big thing for them in well, next month or so with their game coming up and yeah made such a big difference in a short space of time at Bournemouth um, and it's a great story for Kiefer Moore because when you know when Bournemouth were last promoted, as we said about in 2015, he was at Yeovil, just left Yeovil, was about to try his luck to go and play in Norway. You know, it's been well documented. He was sort of juggling personal training uh, with lifeguard duties a few years earlier than that. And now for him to be in the Premier League 29, you know, it's a great sort of story in its own right. Um, you know that, you know, to to be the man who sort of gets Bournemouth over the line and whatever it's worth these days, about 200 million. Yeah, big big sort of pat on the back to him really. Some really lovely news about David Brooks as well. He's been given the all clear after cancer treatment. Uh, The 24-year-old announced in October he'd been diagnosed with stage 2 Hodgkin lymphoma, was due to start treatment immediately. It's been a few months since my last update and in that time I've thankfully completed my treatment. He tweeted, I'd like to say a huge thank you to the incredible medical staff, their amazing work and support throughout the process. And I think the crowd acknowledged him. He was in the kind of uh, prawn sandwich area, you know, the corporate boxes, and they acknowledged him, which was a lovely moment. After the game, there's obviously another uh, another piece of sort of worrying but good news is that Steve Cook's dad uh, had a cardiac arrest before the game, um, and Steve Cook resuscitate uh, uh, tweeted that he was resuscitated, and he thanked the, the medical staff for that. And my big surprise was 
watching Steve Cook run around in a Nottingham Forest shirt. This is my Sergio Ramos uh, <laughs> Barry moment. I had no idea. And uh, forgive me, championship fans, you know, I've got lots of football to watch. When did that happen, Ben? Has that happened five years ago? Like, like, how am I out of the loop? How is Steve Cook in any other shirt than a Bournemouth shirt? Yeah, no, it does seem quite strange. Obviously, 10 years at Bournemouth. I think I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying Bournemouth and give him a testimonial at some point um, as well to sort of... Uh, you know, acknowledge his service. But yeah, joined joined Forrest in January. And one of those players, along with Keenan Davis at Forrest, who, like I say, has, has taken them so close. And I mean, you know, if, if listeners are not aware, you know, if Forrest had won last night, they'd have gone into the pole position for, for the final day. So that's just extraordinary when you think Steve Cooper, Forrest manager, took over the club, you know, with one point to their name. Um, and Steve Cook's been a big part of that. Uh, had a couple of little niggles and injuries, but he's been a big, big player alongside Joe Rowe in defence. Um, and yeah, as you say, obviously hope... Um, you know, all the best to his his father. Uh, look, Fulham on 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 uh, Monday hammered Luton seven nil. And when you think that Fulham should probably be on the beach and Luton are trying for the playoffs, that sort of makes that even more ridiculous. Mitrovic with forty three goals for the season. Surely he's got to get more than ten in the Premier League next year if he's on this kind of sort of crest of a wave. The first side to score more than a hundred goals in a single season in the second tier since Manchester City in oh one oh two. Like. Do we feel that Fulham... Actually, I mean, we could talk about Fulham and Bournemouth. Like, like how ready are they for, for the Premier League? What do they need to do? Because you get the sense with both of them. I suspect people traditionally will think both of them will try and play neat football and won't be good enough at doing that because they're coming up against teams who also will do that and be better than them at it. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, when you look at Fulham, sort of stating the obvious, really given that 7-0 score number, it's not, you know, I think that's the second or third time they've put seven past a, a team this season in the Championship firepower you know is unarguable obviously in the championship in the Premier League you'd like to think the goals are not just suddenly going to dry up for Mitrovic and as you say he wasn't given an awful lot of starts under Scott Parker who was obviously his manager last time in the Premier League I do just worry about both teams a little bit defensively you know Nat Phillips for example at Bournemouth is on loan from Liverpool so you know whether he'll be there next season maybe he'll get given a go in the Premier League who knows and I mean, Fulham is, I think we said the other week, you know, Tim Ream and Tosin, you know, were kind of exposed last time. So that would be my area of concern for both teams, really, is just keeping the ball out at the other end because I think they can score goals. Bournemouth, you know, last night, look at their bench. You had Siriki Dembele and, you know, players like Todd Cantwell wasn't even in the squad who they obviously got in from Norwich. You know, I think going forward hasn't really been too big a question, in you know, in the Championship. But I think they're going to be tested a lot more in the, in the Premier League and... You know, but like I said, Bournemouth conceded three at Swansea the other week quite quite easily. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, so in the playoffs, Forest and Huddersfield are definitely in. Uh, Sheffield United, I'm trying to do the maths here live. I think they're in with their goal difference. And then Luton are in pole position for the final spot. They play Reading on the last day of the season. Middlesbrough could catch them. Um, and, and maybe Millwall could too. I mean... I suspect more professional podcasts would have done that little bit of research beforehand. Who's going up, Ben? Yeah, I, I think Mill can squeeze in purely as a, on the back of, um, sort of piggybacking on on Luton getting you know hammered at Fulham that seven goal uh, swing. The goal difference is taking a bit of a battering, so I think Mill will win with a sniff at best. Um, Huddersfield look re- have been really good this season, Max. What Carlos Corbrand has done, they finished twentieth last year, had the worst defense in the league. Brought in numerous players, but on a very modest budget. Most of them free transfers in loans. And it's kind of welded this amazing team together. 
I suppose Forrest, it'd be interesting how Forrest react this weekend on the, on the back of that defeat, having been so close to potentially sort of turning the tables on Bournemouth. Will they now arrive into the playoffs in a slightly different place? But I think Huddersfield, are, nobody would want to play them, I don't think. Equally, Luton, if they do get there and have had a great season and again might just, um, would certainly be the story of, of the playoffs, I think, if they, if they get there. At League One playoffs start um, on Thursday, Wickham playing MK Dons and then on Friday, Sunderland play Sheffield Wednesday. Hey, Sunderland Wednesday is, is a ridiculous League One playoff match, isn't it? Yeah, really juicy and I think they've already sold just ridiculous amount of tickets. You know, I think it's going to be close to a sellout or a sellout. The thought of one of those exiting and having another year in League One is is quite grim, um, certainly for their fan base. Um, and again, be interesting, you know, Wickham have kind of just squeezed in uh, on the last day, really. And, um, you know, a team like MK Dons were so close to automatic, so it'd be interesting the sort of dynamic there. But um, Sheffield Wednesday, yeah, could could go back. And, but Sunderland, you know, the another season in League One, I know Barry's probably not feeling too optimistic, but, um, yeah, it'd be interesting how they line up. Uh, all right, well, we'll, uh, uh, we'll do League Two. We'll cover off all the AFL, I'm sure, uh, soon. Um, but before you go... Um, you you told producer Joel you had a terrible, nightmarish, travel-based story regards getting to Rome, and that's probably what the listeners want to hear about. Yeah, well, I think I used the word hellish, Max, which, you know, I think wouldn't be uh, over-exaggerating it. No, it was, um, it was a bit of a farce, basically. In short, all I'll say is that, uh, you know, Leo from EasyJet was needed to bring uh, some order to the chaos. That is what I will say, because uh, the queues in security and uh, it checking meant I... Uh, came very close to missing my flight. I mean, and for somebody who, you know, gets a bit jittery about the idea of not having a parking space, the idea of, you know, missing a flight was um, pretty treacherous, to be fair. And also, I mean, probably the highlight for the listeners, perhaps, will be that um, basically I didn't have the right mask to fly to Italy or Austria, apparently. So right. at this point, landside, if I just sort of paint the picture here, so I'm about to check in and the queues are horrendous. Um, and then the lady behind the desk says, oh, no, you need this mask. You can't check in without it. And in short, in the end, I had to go and just go through this sort of snaking queue, just asking other passengers if they had a spare mask. And luckily, some guy bailed me out. But if it wasn't for him, hopefully he's a listener, because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be talking to you uh, from uh, Rome today, Max. Well, look, thank you to man. Thank you to unidentified man for giving Ben Fisher a mask. And thank you to... Uh, uh, Leo from inverted commas unnamed budget carrier or EasyJet as you dropped in in the next sentence. Uh, cheers, Ben. Thanks for coming on, mate. Cheers, Max. Take care. Uh, ben Fisher out in Rome. Uh, we'll catch up with him after Leicester's game in the Conference League uh, if it's interesting, uh, and that'll do for part two. Uh, it, it's worth you all knowing that uh, Ben and I did that chat a bit before everyone else got on the pod. That's why no one else. Uh, reacted to Ben's incredible story of his travel woes. Uh, the rest of the panel will be back for part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly, uh, the live tour, Barry. We are still selling tickets. They're selling well everywhere, except maybe Birmingham. Uh, who knew Jordan Jarrett Bryant's <laughs> hatred of Aston Villa? That's so much power. So listen, if you are in and around Birmingham and you feel sorry for us, the 15th of June is where we'd really like to sell some tickets. Simon says, always welcome in the Bahamas. Crowd will be small, but it's a good holiday. 
Oh, let's add that to the US too. I'd happily do it. I'd do a, I would do a live show to one in the Bahamas. I would thoroughly enjoy it. Maybe we could get just like a, a Vegas style residency <laughs> in some Bahamas venue. Just keep doing the same show every five night nights again. a week. <laughs> Even Simon stops coming after about three days, but we keep hammering it. We could carry on the pod from the Bahamas. Why not? Um, on the subject of going to Chicago uh, in our 2023 Caribbean, US, Australia tour, as it now is, Tom says, whatever you do, do not take that Chicago listener's offer of a round of Marlot. It's pronounced just as it's written. I'm from Chicago. Marlot is not a kindness. It's a punishment. I, I still haven't Googled it. I don't know what it is, but I presume it's some kind of petrol. Um, anyway, go to myticket.co.uk 13th of June, Leeds, 15th, Birmingham, 19th, Manchester. 5th of July is in Dublin is sold out, but still a few tickets on the 4th of July at the Hackney Empire, 8th and 9th of July. That is quite a big venue. <laughs> Open brackets, close brackets. And uh, in Glasgow on the 13th of July. So come along. Um, Manchester United beat Brentford 3-0 uh, on Monday. I mean, it feels like a year ago doesn't it? Uh, Victory moved them on to 58 points with two games to go. Uh, They still have the chance to match their tally from 2013-14 under David Moyes, which is their lowest uh, since the 59 points they struggled to in 1990-91. It was the last game of the season at Old Trafford. Um, uh, At the end of part one, we were talking about applauding, Simon. They did a walk around the pitch and applauded and some people got very upset about Manchester United players applauding the crowd. Did, Did it upset you? Were you uh, where you turn into a furious rage? I saw Jesse Lingard's brother was particularly upset. And that one, I, I frankly, I did understand. There seemed to be a lot of kind of emotional farewells in that second half, some some sympathetic substitutions. Uh, and I don't know what kind of, what exactly has gone on behind the scenes, but I thought it was strange among all of that, you know, given that uh, Manchester United had the flexibility, had the, the, the match situation was such that they could afford to make substitutions for little reason other than uh other than uh you know to, to allow a long-standing player a chance to receive a final ovation i felt it was pretty strange that Jesse Lingard didn't get a go uh, as a, a child of the club i mean obviously they've embarrassed themselves this season but it happened that on monday they didn't and actually brentford didn't either i thought brentford played okay uh so you're only as good as your last game, and theirs was okay. You know, give them a clap. They haven't had many opportunities, after all. That's true. Uh, Jesse Lingard's brother, Louis Scott, uh, on Instagram, saying, 20 years of blood, sweat and tears, four domestic trophies, three cup final goals, not even a farewell. No wonder it's Conference League next year. Thumbs up. Attacking players for celebrations when the club's being sold to the Super League. Okay. Class of 92, Busby Babes, confused emoji. You're ran by people who don't even know the offside trap. Classless, and the fans need to realise, good night, God bless, ta Peace sign. Been there since nine years of age. Didn't even get a send-off. Well done, bro. Your family are proud. I, I, I don't disagree necessarily with the sentiment. It does seem, Barry, that relatives getting involved in social media doesn't ever seem to be that useful a path to tread. Well, I suppose it doesn't really matter if he's off and it possibly was a little churlish not to give him the send-off. But, you know, it was... The strength of his brother's feeling would suggest that this is something that has wounded Jesse Lingard. I'm not sure I'd particularly care, uh, but that's just me. I'm not one for big uh, ceremonial farewells or anything. You know, the do you do you want a big send off this summer, Barry? Or no, no. 
<laughs> okay, fine. Who knows what's going on behind the scenes, as, as Simon says. I suppose, you know, it, it's... If if they didn't do the farewell, but the players might not even have wanted to do that lap of gratitude or obsequiousness or whatever it's called. But if they hadn't, there'd be fury over that as well. Oh, look at the players ignoring <laughs> the fans who turned up every you know week in week out to watch that shite, and they can't even have the good grace <laughs> to give us a round of applause. It's all it's just nonsense, isn't it? I, I love the idea of a Tano man saying, please hang around after the game. There will be a lap. There will be a lap of obsequiousness. <laughs> <laughs> please stay in your seats. Um, Nicky, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo scored nine of United's last 11 Premier League goals. Eight of those at Old Trafford. He pointed at the badge and then the floor, which is football for I'm staying here or I like the badge and I like the floor. Um, if you were Ten Hag... Would you want him there? What, what would you do? I, I mean, it's it's the same conundrum that Juventus faced. I, I, I think it's a perfectly nice conundrum to have, to have a player who scores over and over and over again and then have to work out how to make a football team around them. But look, when he left Juventus, after everyone sort of getting to that point where they were suggesting it was too difficult, that they were having to um, to all work for him, that, that actually sort of his sort of increasingly static presence on the pitch, his unwillingness to... to to press or, or be part of the defensive game plan was hurting more than it was helping. Well, Juventus started the season disastrously, only really picked up from January onwards, which coincided with them signing a replacement who could also score goals, although Vlavic actually hasn't scored that many goals, but still he's he's given them back some sort of shape in an attacking way they didn't have. Were he to leave tomorrow, you'd see some definite short-term pain. Um, I think you don't replace those goals by clicking your fingers. I think he's a complicated player at this stage in his career. He's, again, clearly still incredibly talented and able to contribute a lot, but he does require you to have a team that that fits around him rather than the other way around. Are there any reasons to be positive, Simon? You sort of think sometimes one or two purchases can make a big difference to a squad and, and there is quality at Manchester United. Yeah, I'm not sure I get the the talk that it'll take at least 10 years to fashion a winning team. I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I think a decent manager, few new signings, the team should improve. I do think the club isn't doesn't feel like it's healthy, like essentially it feels like that some organs have failed there that we might not be able to see superficially and that that does need to be dealt with and and I've got no idea how it would be particularly if the ownership is one of the issues. Um but I see no reason whatsoever why they can't have an attacking, entertaining, uh, efficient team competing for titles in the near future. It's not like they, they haven't invested in their squad. Uh, let's talk about Chelsea. Um, uh, Jacob Steinberg uh, writing in The Guardian, the sales in major doubt because of fears Roman Abramovich is attempting to renege on his promise to write off his £1.6 billion loan to the club. As we were saying before the pod, I think if somebody owed me £1.6 billion, <laughs> I probably wouldn't want to let it slide. <laughs> I'd probably say, mm, mate, do you mind? Um, anyway, uh, he writes, on a day when Sir Jim Ratcliffe increased the pressure on Todd Burley's consortium, who have been granted preferred bidder status, 
Uh, it emerged that Chelsea said during talks with the government last week that they wanted to restructure the way the club is being sold. That would include paying off the debt from the club's parent company, Fordstam Limited, to a Jersey-based company, Cambly International Investments, which appears to be linked to Abramovich. Uh, Abramovich is arguing that the sanctions will prevent him from writing off Chelsea's debt. There's a sense in Westminster this could be a late bargaining ploy. There are growing concerns that the sale could drag on with Chelsea's operating licence set to expire on the 31st of May. Nadine Doris, the culture secretary, said last week that the European champions were on borrowed time. There is obviously every chance Nadine Doris doesn't know what a football is, but we'll put that to one side. Uh, There have been warnings that Chelsea could be prevented from playing in the Premier League and in Europe next season if they're not under new ownership before the licence expires. Um, Chelsea and a spokesperson for Abramovich have been approached for comment. The deadline for sale is is fast approaching. Uh, It's an interesting situation. I'm not sure. I think there's quite a lot of Chelsea fans who possibly haven't grasped the gravity of the situation and what could happen. And I suppose much of what... It does all seem quite up in the air and there seems to be some confusion about where any monies raised will go. At least there is in my head. Um, But I think much of this depends on how willing the government are to let Chelsea lose their Premier League licence and you know, right, tough, you're not going to be in the Premier League next season. I'd say that's unlikely, but you never know with this government. I mean, it feels incredibly unlikely, doesn't it? And I imagine if I was a Chelsea fan, I would sit there thinking, ah, it won't, that can't happen. Look, there have been stories for lots of different and other reasons uh, and slightly more straightforward reasons why big clubs have gone out of business or clubs have gone out of business or gone into administration or whatever. And I suppose you'd you never know. We'll, we'll talk to Jacob uh uh, in the next few pods, uh, Philippe's on tomorrow as well. Uh, I'm sure he'll have something to say about it as well. But yeah, uh, obviously, we will keep our eyes on it and keep you posted. Um, uh, Serie A, Nicky, um, the title race, still getting over. I'm still getting over that uh, goalkeeping error from Inter Milan in their game in hand in the last minute. It's a very Peter Enkelman moment, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was a, a bit of a sort of... One of those moments that you feel like will go down in infamy if they do indeed not win the title. This will be one of those stories that gets told in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time. And funnily enough, Milan at the weekend beat Fiorentina with the help of a bit of a clanger from Fiorentina's goalkeeper. So there's, there's been a couple of those recently. But I'm, I'm still not sure this this story is done quite yet. Um, Milan's next game is against Verona. Verona have a history of, of having famously derailed a Milan title a bit before. This was the first weekend, this one that's just gone, I think, since... Um, early January when you've had all three of the top three teams have actually managed to win on the same weekend. None of them are flawless teams. None of them are. There is no sort of one standout side in the other season, which is why it's been so fun to watch. But it certainly feels right now like Milan have the the momentum and like it was given to them in a very great sense by that that clangor from Radu, which if anyone hasn't seen it, is particularly horrific. It's a real just swing and a miss by the goalkeeper in his own penalty area that allowed Bologna to, to win that game. Uh, yeah, so three games to go. Um, Milan two points ahead of Inter with uh, Napoli a further five points behind and the race for the top four is pretty much done. Juve 10 points ahead of uh, Roma who are in fifth. At the bottom, uh, and this is a question from Luke saying, please ask Nicky about Salernitana. Hours away from being kicked out of Serie A earlier this year. Now they have safety in their hands. Can they do it? Yeah, it's an it's an astonishing story because as um, I'm sorry, I missed their name, but as your correspondent, Luke, Luke, um, Luke, right? They were 
very much on the brink of being uh, kicked out of the league earlier this season. They came into Serie A owned by Gladio Lotito, who is the owner of Lazio. The fact that they were allowed to get into Serie A and that this wasn't resolved before the season starts is just one of many examples of astonishingly poor running of, of the league structure, I think, in Italy at times. The fact that he was even allowed to own them when they were in Serie B uh, speaks to an exemption that was given that should never have been given. But they got to a point at the beginning of the year where uh, that sort of a deadline was approaching and they were going to be forced to be kicked out of the league. If they, if their ownership wasn't resolved, it was resolved. Um, they've hired this manager, Davide Nicola, who has an extraordinary history of, of saving teams from relegation. He did it at Crotone about five years ago where they had something like 14 points after 29 games and he saved them from relegation. And at the time, famously, then did his own personal Giro d'Italia where he sort of got on a bike and rode all the way up from the bottom of Italy up to Turin, where he's um, where he's uh, from and where his uh, son, uh, who died as a teenager in, in a bike accident, so he did this sort of big emotional journey on his bike. And since then, he's been brought in by a couple of clubs, by Torino, by Genoa to save him from relegation, and now by Salernitana as well. And really similar situation to Crotone a few years ago, that the, they were bottom of the league with barely any points at all, no time at all ago. They've picked up 10 in the last four games, and as you say, now have um, fate in their own hands. And I think if he pulls this one off, Nicola is going to be very, very much ready for a bigger job because he has become the absolute expert in in these relegation battles in Serie A. Mike says, Simon's Watford minute. What's gone wrong? Brackets, where to start? How much fault lies with Roy and Claudio? Preferred next coach? How many players do you particularly care about retaining? Just loser Kamara and JP for me. I assume Sar and Dennis are off. Thoughts, Simon? <sighs> it's been an extraordinarily disappointing season. I think the squad is okay. Uh, and the performances, and to lose 11 home games in succession, uh, that is above and beyond the call of duty. And that is that is really top-level, extraordinary achievement in uh, awfulness. Uh, and some of them, like Burnley at the weekend, and that, that they, it really took some effort. And I have to say that that Burnley game at the weekend, uh, we seemed and we dominated the first half. Uh, we have a few good attacking players. But in the second half, a few obviously tired. We were pushed back. And Roy Hodgson was sat on the bench with his sunglasses on. <laughs> and he never did anything. Ray Lewington at least shouted a little bit. But to not make a substitution in that game, uh, given... You know the 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 way it was going was extraordinary. It was I mean it was a dereliction of duty. I, I would say that even if we'd been top of the league, there should be some kind of some kind of comeback for a managerial performance like that. I don't I, generally Hodgson has been unsuccessful, but uh, on Saturday he seemed to, he he just didn't seem at all interested in improving the team, uh, and there were people on the bench who might have done so. What players might uh, interested in, in keeping uh, Imran Loser definitely if we could keep Cucho Hernandez and uh, João Pedro then the attack will be strong I um, mean yeah, otherwise I don't really care there are plenty I'd like to see the the, the back of uh, either because they don't care or because they might fetch a decent amount of money or because I'm not really sure what they contribute who are who would I like to see as the next manager now that's a difficult question the enormous likelihood is that it'll be someone I've never heard of in my entire life. And neither has 
the vast majority of people listening. Uh, but I just hope that it is an attacking manager uh, and one with a kind of long-term vision that the, the ownership are prepared to back. The, there have been too many changes. And the, the fact that is that every mid-season managerial change we've made pretty much has been terrible. Uh, not just this season. Well, we've been okay at appointing managers, certainly not good, but mid-season can't do it at all. Everyone we turn to in the middle of the season is a disaster. Uh, this season, there's been several. Our previous Premier League season, there were a few. What is true without doubt is that I'm massively looking forward to next season more because we're relegated than had we narrowly averted relegation. Uh, the championship is a lot more fun let me at it. Huge news from the world of football uh, that I'm surprised more people haven't picked up on is Wes Houlihan uh, uh, has left Cambridge United uh, after two brilliant years. I would just like to say thank you, Wes. I think you're amazing. Please don't join Peterborough. That would really hurt so much, but you're probably good enough to play for whoever you want. Uh, go to the go to MLS. Um, uh, Sean says, I can't describe the joy this man brought to me. A talent with pizzazz in some of Irish football's gloomiest times. That goal against Sweden was always so nice to hear Cambridge and Norwich fans speak so well of him. Truly one of the best we ever had. Yeah, thank you, Wes, whatever you agree to do. There was a tweet from David Stoker who said, uh, in what is definitely a first in my long football-watching career, encompassing a couple of thousand games at least, the Whitburn number four's wig has just fallen off mid-game. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a picture of a bald man in what looks a bit like a Motherwell kit. I couldn't tell you what level, but there's advertising hoardings and fans, so it can't be that far down the pyramid. Um, uh, sadly, the challenge uh, wasn't videoed, but, you know... Uh, Quite a funny moment in a football match, isn't it? Did you just leave it there? Did you throw it off to the side? What do you, how, what do you do post post wig falling off? Did it affect the game? All these questions. I don't know how wigs work. Like, is it a, a wig wig or just a a hairpiece? And I, I, I think you glue you, them on. I presume you glue like like Conte's is glued on, right? Nikki, I I come to you because. Antonio Conte's Italian. I mean, I don't think Conte wears a wig. I think he had hair transplants. Oh, really? Okay. So does anybody? I, I'm just. <laughs> I my mental picture is of the physio literally applying the magic sponge <laughs> and with glue on, with that, Brit stick on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally <laughs> applying the magic sponge to his head and then playing with that for the remainder of the game. And then sticking it back on, but just not quite straight. <laughs> sort of like a slightly different angle of hair that changes it. It's possible. Anyway, that feels like enough for today. Uh, cheers, Barry. Thanks, Max. Uh, cheers, Simon. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, Max. Uh, more Champions League. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with whatever happens between Real Madrid and Manchester City. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.